given what you referred to earlier, what we call hyperfinancialization, the Fed is in a battle with the labor market, and that means they're in a battle with the equity market. And I think that means an S&P down to 3,000, and it stays there. This episode is brought to you by Circle, the issuer of USDC, one of the most trusted stablecoins in the digital asset industry. You'll be hearing all about them later in the show. All right, we've got a lot of uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover in the interview. So I actually want to start. What I really want to get at with this with this conversation is this idea of hyper financialization, specifically in the mm. U.S. economy. But before we get to that topic, I want to start just on the idea of inflation. I think you were very early to calling inflation, right? At the beginning of 2021 or roundabouts there, I know you were kind of pounding the table saying, we are not taking this seriously enough. I think even by your own admission, it has surprised you, right? Just how persistent it's been, you know, throughout the course of 2022. It's September 27th at the time that we're speaking. Walk us through why were you early to inflation? How did, how has it surprised you, right? And how are you kind of currently thinking about it? So we've always viewed, um, you know, the firm's been around for a decade and most of that period has been very easy to trade, you know, inflation because it's been inflation of, of, of tangible assets, right? And, and, uh, and financial assets because this is all monetary debasement. And as soon as we started fiscal, we started to get concerned because there's conversations that we've had with, you know, policy friends. We used to be in the, uh, I used to be in the policy space with a couple of my colleagues as well. We used to work for a firm called Medley Global Advisors. You know, we used to reach out and talk to policymakers. It would cost you a quarter of a million bucks a year, Michael, to subscribe. You made many, many times more than that because there were times when these guys got information like which you and I would have died for. Um, but it gave you a very clear frame of reference to how to, about, to think about the world. And And um, it was always our view that at some point, the excesses created by monetary debasement, you know, these asset price bubbles that we create, would cause a counter trend backlash. And they would cause that counter trend backlash uh, because people would demand uh, greater equality. That would necessitate fiscal spending. Politicians are always late to the party. And then... You know, you fast forward and you get COVID. And if you go back and you look at history, um, along with wars, pandemics are one of the most tangential generating events that societies can ever have. You come out of those demanding something radically different. So we'd already started to see the um, footprint of the, of the fiscal spending under Trump, right? So Trump came out, he was very much bizarrely for a Republican, he was pandering to the sort of lower end of society. And he came out with his big fiscal spending, which of course, you know, was cleverly disguised as pandering to them, but actually pandered only to the one percenters. Um, but the reality of the situation was it was a big fiscal spend. So then we go into the pandemic, that, that mold has been broken. You know, we've unlocked the, um, the unthinkable, we can spend money. So we come out and boy, do we spend money. Mm. And we had looked at this and thought, okay, so as soon as the the initial plan was very simple, it was as the dollar started to decline post-COVID, we thought, okay, what we're going to get here is we're going to get a very similar repeat of the financial process that we got in early 2016. So the central banks, once again, they were trying to tighten in late 15, the Chinese renminbi devalued. Everyone got panicky. They went off to Davos. Uh, all of them sort of 
coalesced there and they all came back and did the sort of international sign of distress. Mm -hmm. And so over a period of nine months, we got wave after wave after wave of intervention and uh, the dollar fell and oil prices took off. And so you could just model this. So initially in 2020, we thought that was just kind of a repeat. And then you started to model what this fiscal and monetary stimulus would do. And we built some models working with some clients and they blew you away. Mm. The combined fiscal and monetary stimulus that we did was five times greater than anything that we'd seen in the post-war period. And when you modeled those against inflation, you started to get numbers that were mind-blowing. Mm. We then started to see it get picked up in the PMIs. And I think that is something quite unique because to be honest, early 2021, um, we had thought that you might get a, sorry, early 2022, we thought we might get a little bit of a peak in inflation. And then this thing just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And it comes back, I think, to the persistence of this inflation story, comes back to the pricing power of US corporations. And we can talk about that mm. uh, later. But the model, basically, the models that we were using said, we'll get to about now, possibly another month, we then hit peak inflation. It was going to blow every estimate out of the water that people were thinking about at the time. And so for us, the trades were really simple. So we started shorting euro dollars that were almost placed at 100 <laughs> back in November of 2020. And we just kept selling and selling and selling. And, you know, we did the same in Europe. We did the same in the UK. Um, and just the market was not priced for inflation at all. I think now, I think the Fed is in a battle with the US corporate sector. Uh, I think part of the problem that we have here in the US is we have, certainly in many markets, highly uncompetitive marketplaces, right? I mean, you're working off, uh, you know, courtesy of an internet service provider, it's Verizon or Comcast or one of them, they like to tell you there's an awful lot of competition. But it's amazing how many times when you look in your building, there's one, right? Maybe if you're in the city, you have two, okay? But up here, there's one. In most tracts of the country, there's one. And so they gouge your eyes out. And this is a country where we frankly have monopolistic or at best oligopolistic markets in many areas, right? The Biden administration was complaining it recently about beef producers, right? Why have we only got three slaughterhouses? Why are they making all this money? Why are beef prices going up? Blah, 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 blah. So as long as these guys have got pricing power, as long as they're facing input costs, they're going to push it through to maintain margins. And so you could use a lot of these PMI metrics to actually really well measure, Michael, what inflation was going to do. I think inflation has peak headline inflation. Uh, I think it could come down. Our model is suggesting, you know, we're looking at probably another drop coming the next month or two down to about seven. But it's the persistence of core, which is really problematic. And as we all know, that's got an awful lot to do with things like owner equivalent rent. So in other words, rental rates, those are, seem to be highly sticky around six to 7%. And it also has an awful lot to do with wages. And wages, I think, and, and the labor market, I think, now is the biggest battle that the Fed faces. I've said, I'm afraid, I think they have to crack the labor market. And given what you referred to earlier, what we call hyperfinancialization, 
that means they've got to crack the equity market. Hmm. Explain how those two ideas are connected. Why, first of all, why is wage growth such at at the forefront, right, of the Federal Reserve's agenda? What does that have to do with the stock market? So, so wages are important because if you look at the labor market in kind of in aggregate, um, and you take something like average early earnings, so how much you earn per hour that you work, how many hours you work, and then how many people are working, you can get a pretty decent proxy for what we refer to as nominal GDP. So GDP plus in, real GDP plus inflation. Okay. That is growing at about 9%. That is double, Michael, anything we've seen during the prior decade. And the economy is growing at above trend, uh, nominal trend. So the very least that the Fed has to do is reduce that growth back to those kind of at least pre-COVID decade, dropping it from where it is about nine to about four, you know, four and a half to five, you cannot do it without one of the following. You've either got to drop wages, seems quite unlikely at the moment. I heard some horror stories. I was, uh, I was sitting in a bar the other day and chatting to a guy that I know there, and he's a cabin crew for Southwest when he's not working in the bar. And we, he said, oh, you know, our wage negotiations are coming up. And I said, oh, that's nice, Caleb. You know, maybe you should go for what the unions on the railways got, 24%. He went, oh, that's not enough. And I went, what? And he said, we're going for 30. Right? Mm-hmm. So, and he knew all the stats. He did, was inflation, it's nine. Maybe it comes down a bit. But, you know, this gets held for so many years, blah, blah, blah. But the point is, wages aren't coming down. Okay? So then you go... Okay, so are the hours worked going to drop, right? Well, maybe, but if you've certainly, you know, the demand for labor is so high that if you're willing to work, you're working pretty high, you know, high number of uh, hours um, and a lot of overtime. So then you've got a third option. And the third option is you reduce the number of people who are working. Hmm. And the only way you can do that is, I'm afraid, in a world of, hyper-financialization. And this is, this is something that we've observed over the years, and I think is a frightening reality. And hyper-financialization that we use in this context of the incredibly tight correlation, Michael, that exists between essentially equity prices and the real economy, hmm. be that employment, capex, GDP, you name it. Logic would dictate, sir, that stock prices should be a function of the underlying economy, right? What growth is going on, how much people are spending, what level is inflation, right? All of those things, it should be the real economy, right? That should be essentially the chicken and the egg should be whatever is spat out in terms of PEs and interest rates and inflation and bond yields and so on and so forth. Certainly when it comes to key metrics like CapEx and employment, that is, and things like some of these PMI metrics, which are metrics of, uh, of basically confidence, that is not the case. Hmm. What actually leads them is the equity market. And we think this is the case because unfortunately we've ended up in a situation where CEOs are simply and utterly rewarded to be shepherds of an equity price, where they were literally up until very recently, not even rewarded for making a profit 
Mm. Right? In fact, they were punished to make a profit because if you were making a profit, it meant you weren't growing fast enough. And so they're not actually rewarded to do anything. They are just shepherds of that equity price. And hence, the minute that an equity price goes down, they reach into the cupboard and they drag out the cost-cutting axe and they take an axe to capex and they take an axe to employment. So if you look at the correlations between things like initial claims or jolts and the S&P, you will see they are incredibly close, mm. frighteningly close. So the bottom line is, if the equity market sits here and everyone feels kind of chipper and CEOs don't cut employment, the economy continues, the labor market remains too robust, that nominal GDP metric, hours worked, total, um, how many hours you're working, how much you're earning an hour, total number of people employed remains high, and we continue to go well above trend, and inflation, core inflation, remains a fundamental problem. So mm. the Fed is in a battle with the labor market, and that means they're in a battle with the equity market. Mm. So how do we change? Because the, the funny history of how execs are, are compensated actually comes from, this is a great example of the government trying to step in, solve a problem, they create a bigger one. So back in the 90s, when Bill Clinton's running to become president, CEO compensation out of control, right? Everybody is a huge campaign promise. We're going to limit uh, CEO pay. So what they did was they put a cap, no more than a million dollars tax deductible for the corporation, but with a loophole. There can be, that does not include <laughs> equity upside, right? So what happens? No CEOs are getting paid uh, in more than a million dollars, but suddenly their stock-based compensation explodes. And that, yeah. funnily enough, correlates, uh, you know, coincides with the Fed starting to, because the next question that I wanted to ask you was, is how much of this is due to the wealth effect, right? When the Fed is enacting monetary policy, which is the idea that is the, price, the value of stock goes up, consumers spend more in the economy, and it's this great kind of loop that we're running. So how much are, do you see those ideas as being related? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, you know, trickle down economics, right? You, you load up the 1% and they'll, uh, you, and they'll, uh, they'll be magnanimous in their spending choices, right? You know, I, you know come to Vail and, and see the $40 million home <laughs> that's sold to some uh, executive of a, uh, of a dot-com company, right? Mm. Um, of a tech firm, you know, but don't, don't worry, he'll have a gardener and a guy to, you know, shovel the snow and a cook and uh, it's bloody inefficient, mm. right? Trickle down economics and it's bloody expensive. Um, look, I'm a true capitalist, but there's many times you have to look back and go, God, this system is rigged. And, you know, how do we end it? Not easy. It's not easy, right? You've given, you know, in the US, we were talking before the show, you know, the fact that the, the Supreme Court gave the same rights to a, to a corporation as to an individual. And that, that corporation has got a lot more spending power than your average individual makes it pretty hard, mm. right? Makes it pretty hard. I mean, I think, you know, I, the last one I remember is, you know, Trump, I had some very good friends from my policy day who were working very, very closely with the Trump administration. And when he started to do the whole tax incentive to bring manufacturing back to the US, right, he was going to put distinct penalties 
on any company that got the tax break if they did not do it. It was all going to be accountable. It was all going to be, you know, in a, in a way, it was highly laudable what he was proposing, right? We're going to break with China because they're our enemy, because they've sort of hollowed out the middle class. We're going to give these tax breaks to corporations to bring these jobs back, and we're going to hold them accountable. Great concept. And I remember talking to my friends who were in that administration, and then guess what's happened at the last minute? All that accountability. So they got all the tax breaks and none of the accountability. So what happened? Buybacks, stock, you know, go up. Profitability explodes because the tax rates go down. And what's the American public left with? Not much. Mm-mm. I think that's... You know, I think that's one of the saddest. I was talking to a friend of mine actually about the the monetary injection that we did, you know, to combat COVID. And, you know, so much of it was just an exercise in misallocation of capital. It's like all Correct. the wrong stocks went up. And now where they've done a complete round trip. So what has everybody been doing for the last two years? They've wasted time. And now what are we doing? We're staring down the mouth of a recession. So, Correct. you know, I guess if I had to... In some ways, they did the objective, right? They bridged the gap from here to there. Well, now, unfortunately, mm-hmm. we're there. Uh, and there's not, you know, a, a golden island on the other side of the bridge. It's a, <laughs> it's a swamp full of crap, <laughs> basically. Right. I mean, you know, when you look at, when you look at the bursting of, of, of some of these, these names, you know, like I was on Twitter a lot just because I, yeah, I found it quite amusing. We don't do single stocks. You know, we were talking about Twitter uh, for ARC, right? You know, and I'm not saying Kathy's a bad investor. I think she's, you know, she's done incredibly well for certain people. But I think she was what the British would call a, a horse for a certain course, right? Mm-hmm. There was a, you know, ton of, it's a classic bubble. There was a great narrative. I, I, I've, you go back and look at history. Most bubbles have a fantastic narrative. The, the exception being the sort of tulip bubble. I couldn't quite understand what the narrative around that was, right? But whether you look at the Latin American railways in the late 1800s, where you look at the dot-com bubble, whether you look at Japan, you know, there's a great narrative. You then need an enormous quantity of liquidity, which certainly in COVID we got, mm-hmm. and then when those conditions start and ideally if you get a trend in the currency that's even better and we did right so so we got a currency with the dollar rising so money is sucked in from the rest of the world to really funnel that bubble and then the the narrative starts changing and you know we looked at it it looked had all the the there's a classic bubble chart that we use which we use time and time and time again there's a classic bubble like you go from, you know, discovery to you go from stealth, which is kind of the early days to discovery where the institutional money gets in. Then you go into the sort of mania and then you go into the bust. And now we're in the bust. And so you're seeing that. So you're seeing that in certain parts of the sector. We still have not wrung it out of this market. I mean, most yeah. people don't seem to realize Apple used to trade at a discount to the broad market in terms of PE up until not QE, which was in September of 2019, where they bailed out the repo market, the Fed. And then it went, it, then when we got into COVID, it went even further. But you could argue, you could take this thing back from a P of 25 to 15, so under the broad market, and nothing would have radically changed, apart from the, the stock price and 
an enormous loss to the S&P because it's the dominant stock now, right? You can do that to stocks, and I'm afraid we're going to do it to housing. I mean, I was updating my house price models today, and they're dynamic, so stuff could change. But as it stands in the more, at the moment, they suggest a 15% drop in house prices nationally by this time next year. Now, they've gone up more than that, Michael, right? So you can say, yeah. well, we're just kind of resetting it. But uh, some people are going to get caught really horribly if they mm. paid at the top. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'm glad you're bringing up housing. We talk about it a lot on this show. I mean, can you walk us through, I mean, housing for me, to really zoom out about why housing important, housing is an enormous part of the US economy, right? Enormous driver Correct. of the US economy. I also think it sits at a pretty unique position as a part of the social contract of America, right? If you go back to the very mm -hmm. founding of the land, right? Land, right? Was at the very founding of the social contract. Then it was, you want to own your own home, right? Because it's a big financial unlock. Walk us through, how do you think about housing? Why do you see such a big turn right around the corner? So we wrote a piece a um, couple of months ago, um, and we'd started to get nervous about housing back in November of last year. And then kind of, we went tried to short ITB we were a bit early. We took our eyes off the, off the bogey a bit. And then we got back to it a, couple, a few months ago. And I wrote this piece, and it was called housing timber mm. and it wasn't i didn't mean timber as in uh falling falling over it was a play on words so to your point about that that core of the american or in fact you know the anglo-saxon kind of because uh, mm. the same in the uk and australia and canada um dream uh there was a fantastic advert which we played with in the piece from 2016 Super Bowl by Rocket Mortgage. And they said, what if it was really easy to get a mortgage? And if you got a mortgage, then you would buy a house and then you would buy stuff to go in the house and you'd buy the mixer and the TV and maybe that sofa with the hand-carved wooden legs. And wouldn't the guy uh, who makes those hand-carved wooden legs, if he found it really easy to, to get a mortgage, go and buy a house, the demand for his hand-carved wooden legs went up. And isn't ultimately that the essence of America? And I sat there and I thought that about sums it up because I've looked at this thing and I played this cycle uh, in the last decade or so, you know, a few times. I caught it in 08, 09 when I was still sitting on a trading desk of a bank and modeling. I probably was the only FX sales guy who was listening to the home builders calls in 06, 07 going, oh shit, this is bad. And I worked with an old colleague of mine at Medley called Josh Rosner, who went and wrote a book with uh, Gretchen Morganson from the New York Times about the whole housing bust. And we modeled this all out and it was dying. You could see it happening. So fast forward, you know, a few years, um, what have we done? Well, there's a couple of things to understand about housing. Firstly, if you go and take a, a chart of the NYSE, so a broad metric of the US equity market, and you put it up against um, single family medium house prices, you will see, unfortunately, they are the same. Right? They are the same. So that same monetary debasement that we've been doing since 08 uh, is, is the same thing that's driven up house prices. Mm. So the pro that's fine. Okay, in inverted commas, but then you get affordability issues. Okay, so you you know at some point you have to get wages to keep up, otherwise this thing is unsustainable. Um, 
Then you get an issue with obviously the inflation story and the backup in bond yields. And that coincided as well with COVID by probably the, one of the biggest jumps that we've seen in a short, in fact, the biggest jump, I think, in since the 70s, which is about far back as you can get, in new building construction. So US builders, starting in the summer of 2020, you know, the period of the beginning of the Great Migration went, ooh, and they ran off to Boise, Idaho, and they started building millions of new homes. Mm. And we saw a 40% jump in homes under construction since that point, 40 actually plus percent. Now, that's fine until all of a sudden you stress the whole model with higher rates. When you stress the whole model with higher rates, essentially you get the classic bullwhip, that inventory cycle scenario, where you're finishing these homes and they're coming through, Michael, and they take nine to 12 months, maybe even a bit longer, you know, given the delays we've got in getting parts, okay? And those are, those are coming through the pipeline, right? They're not still all the way through, right? And your sales are suddenly plummeting. Now, today we got a really good new home sales. It was a seven sigma deviation from the forecast, which always should make you a tad suspicious. It was also the largest divergence versus the models that we've seen in 20 plus years. So I'm going to call foul on that number. Um, and I think we're actually going to see new home sales drop back down to the kind of 400, 450,000 level, particularly mm -hmm. since we haven't even seen this recent spike in mortgage rates, which has been nosebleeding in the mm -hmm. last month or so, even feed through. Um, so I think we're in a situation where I run some models where I look at things like the rate of change in houses under construction versus rate of change of new homes being sold. And we've just seen the largest increase in that ratio. So houses under construction rising, new homes actually sale, so up for sale falling. The, the largest rate of change in that in the post-war, since 1970, sorry. And I think in the GFC, we hit a 75, 80% increase rate mm. of change. We just hit 185. So this is more than double of anything that we've seen in the last 50 years. So to me, this suggests, firstly, a bust in housing construction. Mm. I'm looking at the home builders, and I think, you know, if I take something like ITB, which is the home builders ETF, you know, this thing was trading... Uh, you know, it's come down. People say, well, it's come down a lot. It's really cheap, you know, because it got sort of like 85 and it's now 50. But I'm looking at levels of home sales, which would be commensurate with this thing trading probably somewhere between 20 and 30. So I think it can halve from here. I don't think anyone's got an idea how bad this bust is going to be. And typically those spikes in those, the, the, the divergence between sales and construction have resulted in pretty ugly recessions, you know, along the lines of the ones we saw in the mid seventies, early eighties, early nineties. So true sort of, I'm not talking global financial crisis because I don't think, you know, what's going to get eaten up most is people's 
equity in their house. It's not like they borrowed a ton. There are some areas I'm a little concerned. Actually, bizarrely, in what you refer to as high net worth clients, mm. so I think they've taken quite a lot of leverage to buy homes. Um, but in broadly, um, my biggest concern is just a big slowdown in construction. And that tends to correlate incredibly strongly with employment. And if I look at something stupid like housing starts and you put it against uh, unemployment, you'd be looking at unemployment at this point going towards six to seven percent. Hmm. That's an ugly recession. That would be ugly. No, but that's not, you know, wildly outside of the normal range, right? The, you know, I think no. it's important to keep in mind our unemployment right now is historic at historic lows. Historically low, yes. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's another reason why, I, you know, I think the actually, the, you know, it's interesting. The Fed pencils into their SEP, so their forecasts, 4.4% rise in unemployment. That's kind of them telling you you've got a recession because you generally don't have more than a 0.5 rise in unemployment without generating a recession. And the low was 3.5. So even a rise to four would have got your recession. 4.4 pretty much guarantees your recession because unemployment kind of doesn't unemployment's a strange looking chart if you you know if you can go and pull it up and you can go to the, the fed's website and pull it up it kind of it looks like a mountain range in the sense sharp peaks rounded bottoms like the bottom of mm. the valley in the mountain but once it starts to rise again it kind of doesn't go up and then oh conveniently sit at 4.4 for the next hmm. three or four years it goes up to 4.4, 4.5, 4.6, 4.7. Because one job loss begets another job loss, begets another job loss, begets another job loss. Do you see a connection in between home prices? Let's uh, Owner's equivalent rent, or just rent, the average rent that people are yeah. paying. I know we do owner's equivalent for CPI purposes in, in the stickiness of wages. Because you know if you think of it, if everyone's rent is going up, that kind of puts a floor under... You know, it's, it's something has to break, right? Between one of those things, Correct. right? Either the, the the rents need to come down or the wages need to basically stay where they are to accommodate. But right, because people aren't going to go without without housing. So do you Correct. see kind of a, a connection? Yeah, I mean, all of these things are correlated. I mean, if you if you tend to look at, um, if you tend to look at wages, to your point, I mean, you know, and and uh, they tend to lag actually inflation initially, right? They They tend to be reactive, right? We'd all got very, very used to low inflationary environments. Right, well, in low inflationary environments, you don't have to be overly militant. You don't have to, you know, demand, you know, as this Southwest guy had, you know, a 30% pay rise, right? I mean, it's ludicrous. Mm. Once you, once that becomes unanchored, right? Once that becomes, you lose that linearity. I mean, I think this is the point. I mean, you know, I was talking to companies and or clients who, who were invested directly in companies in late, I say midsummer 2021, and they were seeing price increases that they couldn't even get their heads round. Like these were companies that had planned for, you know, five percent price increases, or they would five percent sorry inputs. They thought, you know, give it two percent productivity, then maybe they could raise prices by three. Right, that's fine. Mm. All of a sudden, they were seeing thirty. <laughs> yeah, right? thirty, and they just. You know, I, I have a private equity client, and they were just telling their guys, "No, you're not. You're not planning for enough price increases. You just you've got to do more." 
because you know we're seeing what's coming down the pipeline and you think you're raising prices 25% it isn't enough i mean it, you know you're going to get for a while until you wring it out of the system and i think that means an s&p down to 3000 and it stays there mm. um you're going to see militancy in wages but the way you crack it is you know I mean, I think the Fed's the, the Fed is trying to do it the nice way, because the nasty way is the Volcker, right? You take rates above inflation, mm. and we're not talking about core PCE. He did it to headline CPI. So given what we've got, what, eight, you take that rates to 10, well, you put a PE on the S&P then, and you figure out where your earnings numbers are. I suspect we'd be sub 2,000, okay? Mm. Or you kind of you nudge them into slightly tight, which is what they're doing, this four and a quarter, four and a half that they keep talking about. And then you leave them there for a long, long, long period of time, Michael, where both policy becomes essentially asymmetric. So if growth and inflation doesn't slow, you jack it up. If it does slow, you just leave it where it is. I speak to a lot of companies in both crypto and traditional finance, and as it turns out, they share a common problem. They need a one-stop shop for treasury management and fast international payments around the globe. Circle's USDC is one of the most trusted and widely used stablecoins in the industry. At the time of this recording, USDC has 50 billion in circulation, one and a half million users worldwide, and is settling more than $5 trillion. That's trillion with a T worth of value. USDC has quickly become one of the easiest ways to move your money around the globe. On top of all that, Circle is building products for companies and institutions that want to adopt this technology. That means payment transactions, fraud management tools, digital asset custody, and a whole other suite of services. Here's one of my other favorite parts about Circle. They post monthly audits of their reserves, which means that I don't have to trust. I can verify that my money is safe, transparent, in a compliant manner. Helps me sleep easy at night, you know? As a seamless trusted digital dollar, USDC is a zero to one opportunity for the entire global financial system. And you know what? Don't trust me, you can verify. Check out their recently published Transparency Hub on the website. It's a great update to Circle's content in USDC, outlines everything from USDC weekly reserve reports, monthly attestations, and blog posts written by their exact team. Just go to circle.com backslash transparency to access it. Now, back to the show. I was looking for a chart here, I just found it. I want to show this to you because I we're not, I think, at Volcker levels yet, but there, here's a little analysis that I found, which is, um, you know, there, there's this is a model basically of CPI change based on, you know, estimates from uh, in anywhere from declining 1% month over month to increasing uh-huh. up to 0.4% month over month. And then that's charted against where the market is pricing in Fed futures. Uh, uh, yep. You know, it's the Fed funds rate. And you know, if the market decline, you know, based on this analysis of the market decline, if uh, CPI declines month over month by 1%, then we have a Fed funds rate that's above CPI by February of this coming year, even if it continues to increase. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, so it, we're not at Volcker levels yet, but it's certainly, they certainly have done a, he's not looking totally un-Volkerish at the same time. I guess well, the question no, is- Well, no, but it, this is, this is their, they actually call this mm-hmm. opportunistic disinflation. So this is what Mm. Greenspan did in the mid-90s, okay? Mm. But bear in mind, we're not interested in headline. So all of Mm. those things virtually work off headline, right? Mm. And we've seen people who've assumed headline fail on a number of occasions, right? Mm. Um, You know, they 
early 2022, it looked like the headline would drop because of base effects from energy. It didn't. Now it's mm. September. Everyone's saying it's going to drop because of base effects from energy. And it might. Okay, it might. We are starting to see some declines in some of these PMI pricing, which I think has been more accurate. And our model certainly says that we've hit the high. Um, but it's more about this core. And this core is increasingly about the strength of the labor market, which is why I keep going back to, unfortunately, and Powell has danced around this because you can't do an Andrew Bailey, like the bank, governor of the Bank of England, go, oh, I'm terribly sorry. You're just going to have the worst recession you've seen in the <laughs> post-war period, right? No, the Fed is far too politicized and, and the Bank of England doesn't have an unemployment mandate, right? Right? Has an inflation mm -hmm. mandate. So Powell has to kind of dance around this, do this little jig, but talk about things like oh, pain, pain. We might need pain. Right. But you saw him answer that question where he said, you know, well, that would mean another million and a half people lose their jobs in the in the Q&A of the press conference the other week. And he sort of went. Not my problem. And I think that's the case. Do you do you think I mean, is your base case then? I mean, an S&P at, at 3000, what is it at now? Um, we're at 36 now. So I think another. Mm -hmm. 600 odd points it really does happen you know the things that worry me is it and i talked to a, a legendary equity investor who's a client of mine the other day and we were talking about this and he says look it just goes lower yeah you know he said it's just going lower there's not much you can do about it it's going lower and he said but i am beginning to worry he said i was always thinking around 3000 but i am beginning to worry of what if we get to 3000 and it even goes lower hmm. because you know I don't think that's the case. I think we should hold there, but I worry. I mean, I look at Europe. People have no idea what's coming down the pipeline there. I just, I've been looking at some metrics that suggested a recession that could look worse than the global financial crisis for Europe. And I updated them today using advanced, my advanced industrial production models. And I can see, I can show it to you, I think. Hmm. Um, what it suggests for German industrial production. And if people don't think this is going to have a consequence in the US, they're freaking delusional. So that is German industrial production versus my model that leads by three months. That's a minus, it's a 25% drop in German industrial production year over year. That's worse than the GFC. What's that going to do to corporate profitability in the United States? How many, how many thousand euros or 1,200 you know, euro, euro uh, iPhone 14 Maxes are you going to be selling there? Less. I would, less. <laughs> yes, lower. I think, that's the, I think that's the correct response. Right? I mean... Yeah. You know, I'm I'm looking at you know, chatting to a friend of mine who runs a, a an equity uh, trading desk uh, in New York, a big uh, desk, and he said they're beginning to think that the PE, that the, earn, the earnings estimates in the U.S. can come down to 190. You know, if you do that, and you say typically at the lows of a recession you get down to 15, then you're at what's that 190? You're at 28, 2850. Hmm. 
So, you know, and as for what it does, a 25% drop in the uh, in German industrial production due to the DAX, God only knows, right? Mm. What's your interpretation of Europe? I mean, you know, I, I don't follow it super deeply. I, I see a lot of the headlines. I have, a, have an understanding of the energy situation that's going on over there. You know, I couldn't help but notice, you know, what the pound did, you know, over the, we're recording this again on uh, September 27th, but you know, this yeah, past you gotta Friday. Because it's moved another 10% before we started the podcast, right? Exactly. That's why I'm, that's why I'm timestamping because I don't know what it's going to be at. But I mean, it hit, you know, something like it was under a dollar and five cents, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a, I think it's a historic, historic low. Um, and can you just give me some context about, you know, how do you read a move like that? Walk us through sort of the economic situation. Maybe we could take the UK and Europe, uh, you know, separately. So, no, I mean, they're kind of six to one half dozen of the other. I mean, the fundamental yeah. problem is one of obviously this energy shock. Now, the UK is actually in a better situation than arguably in continental Europe because it will be able to get access to energy. It has enough LNG, has connections to Norway uh, in terms of provision of power, which should mean, and it has some of its own power, which you know, it hasn't done what the French have done and screwed up all the nuclear power stuff or the Germans shut it all off, right? Uh, where it at least has access to power. The problem is, is it's connected up to the European grid and into the European uh, gas uh, mechanism in the sense that it will still see the same price pressures. And fundamentally, Michael, that's the shock, right? Because even if you take you know, where gas and electricity prices are currently, you're talking about multiple, multiple increases in gas prices, right? Americans might bitch that they've seen a 79%. I was reading the other day that, you know, people are starting to get 75 to 80% increases in their gas bills, right, in the US. And that, uh, welcome to the new world, right? That's what happens when you connect up the US gas grid by LNG to the rest of the world. Okay. Once mm-hmm. another one of those great little advantages of of, uh, of capitalism, where you exploit that arbitrage and you screw the man on the street, right? We've got very used to having six thousand square foot, you know, homes with thirty foot vaulted ceilings, right? Um, which we could heat for nothing. I have a fear we're going back to when I grew up as a kid, when my dad used to scream at me in the 70s, turn that bloody light off, shut that bloody door, wear a sweater, right? Mm -hmm. Now, in Europe, it is factors worse than that factors depending on where you look you're looking at anywhere from you know some of the optimistic estimates are a threefold increase in your gas bill some of them are like fivefold increases in your gas bill and so what the uk did was desperately because they were looking at you know complaints from the pub industry that was saying yeah, literally we're going to lose all the pubs because someone's Heating bill for the pub is going to go from £20,000 a year to 100 right? Chip shops were complaining the same thing. You know, all, every single swathe of industry was complaining the whole thing. So what Truss's government did, essentially, was they came out and they capped the cost of energy, right? They put a cap. They wrote, uh, uh, and we cynically said, well, this isn't going to work well when you basically write an unlimited call option mm-hmm. on energy prices and you pay for it with IOUs, 
like you print money. Now, does continental Europe go down that route? Well, there's cries for Germany to do the same thing. Okay, now maybe they wouldn't come out, which is what Truss's government did, and come out with even more tax cuts, right? Which was bloody stupid. But you can't imagine that Bund investors would be very happy if, if the German government wrote, once again, an unlimited call option on German energy, especially because the real problem isn't likely to be this year where they're going into uh, the winter with relatively high levels of gas storage over 90%. The big problem is going to be next year, where after the summer, that uh, you know maybe they've managed to hold storage to some level, but they're going to wheedle down their storage this year unless something radically changes. And you will go into winter next year with much, much lower levels of storage because there's no way that they can solve the problem within a year. Right? You can't build the LNG facilities, you know, on both sides of the Atlantic to get US LNG within a, into, in there within a year. You know, you can't build the wind farms. You can't build the solar facilities. You can't do any of these things. They're still determined to swill, turn off their nukes, really. So the point is, is what does the German government or the Europeans do? Because if they don't subsidize industry and they don't try and support the consumer and those bills really do go up three to five fold you are basically going to see vast swathes of bankruptcies in german industry and if you don't believe me there's a fantastic article that was written by the german periodical company uh called der spiegel you can go on to the website and it's, it says, how bad will the German recession be? And they go through and they just say, well, if electricity costs stay here, we are not going to be making this anymore. And if we do, you know, they, I mean, look, this is the classic one. Their largest manufacturer of toilet paper just went bankrupt hmm. from energy costs alone. Right? And oh, by the way, if people over on this side of the pond don't think that losing what vast swathes of highly sophisticated inputs from Germany is a big problem, the Tesla Model Y uses 3,000 German sourced components. You know, one, one thing I just, I'm thinking, even listening to that anecdote, right, about about your dad yelling at you in the 1970s, right? Turn off that, turn off that heat. I right. mean, so much of this is it's just a lesson in human psychology of it's very hard to take away something that you feel like has been given to you, Correct. right? If you're listening out there with children, try taking away an allowance or something. It's very <laughs> difficult. It doesn't get any easier, apparently, no. as you get older. And, you know, the US and to a much more severe extent, Europe is sort of being faced with a mass psychological challenge of do we pursue a policy of austerity or you know do we take door number 3 and do we try to do things like price controls government handouts and you know for a while I've been asking on this show I wonder it, it feels like those are two very separate paths that you can mm -hmm. go down maybe they're not as as binary as it seems but to me it seems pretty binary the you know the trust 150 billion dollar you know bailout program that she's proposing seems like a very strong data point in that second camp right the mm -hmm. 
just bailouts, uh, price controls, handouts, et cetera. Uh, but you've seen similar examples, right, from policies coming out of California and Newsom's government over there, right, Correct. also subsidizing the cost of energy. There was an enormous uh, German bailout package, something very similar, even months before this latest crisis. Do you also see the world in that sort of way? Do you see governments as potentially moving down one of these two paths? We started to write this about three, three four years ago when we talked about that we were coming to a tangential change societally, that... You know, as I said earlier, there comes a point where you pump up assets to such a point you just create you create wealth disparities that are greater than you saw under, you know, the ancien regime before Louis got his head chopped off in France, right? You know, between the between Louis and the what they used to refer to as the sans culotte, right? The what uh, you know the, the the people without trousers, basically, you know, the poor. Right, let them eat cake. Right, that classic kind mm. of line. Right, you saw wealth disparities that were greater than that, and societally those are never sustainable. Right, because we live in a democracy and people have a vote, and at some point, create enough pain, they're going to vote against. They're going to vote for themselves. Right, and mm-hmm. you know the United States, I think, has done incredibly well because people believed in the system. Right, you, you alluded to that earlier. Right, we believe in the, the value of property. We believe in the system. Push it hard enough and they'll stop bloody believing. Mm-hmm. And then you'll move into sort of, you know, this essentially the socialism that Trump was sort of advocating by, you know, closing down world trade and doing all this sort of thing and reversing all these policies. So it was inevitable to us that society gets to these tipping points. And I kind of think we're at one of those tipping points. And now, you know, people will say, and I think it's true, we're going into a into an ugly recession. Okay. So the they would say that, you know, the structural inflation people like me are going to be wrong, and I could be wrong, right? But to me, Michael, the question is, is when we get to the into that recession, how do policymakers respond? Right? How do policymakers respond? Do they end up supporting the central bank and maintaining fiscal spending and pushing through with austerity, as you suggested? Or alternatively, do they actually try and double down on fiscal spending, just like Liz Truss's government's doing in the UK, and actually run potentially head-to-head with the central banks? And I'm afraid that's what I fear. I had an interesting Mm -hmm. conversation with a Republican um, uh, official Uh, a few months ago, and I said, so just out of interest, you know, what if in 2023 we have an ugly recession? You know, would you spend more money? Would you you back a Biden-inspired spending plan? And he goes, well, we've got an election to win too, and maybe we wouldn't agree to everything that Biden wanted. But as long as we got some of the stuff that we wanted, yeah, we'd agree to a spending program. And so you can see that that taboo is broken now, right? And why wouldn't you expect governments to keep pushing it to the point of break, which is just what we've seen in the UK? Hmm. I don't see that society is ready to sustain pain. Hmm. So my gut is we'll get a peak in inflation and like it was in the late 60s and 70s, and they forget. People talk about the 70s inflation starts in the late 60s. And it was that inability to rein in the fiscal that, yeah, you peaked and you dropped, but you never went back to the prior lows. 
and there was a new cycle and a new cycle. And that's what I guess my bet is ultimately, that's where we're going. I don't play that day to day. You have to play those cycles, they're big, but I think we're in a structurally inflationary environment because of the politics, the needs of society, and what that implies for fiscal spending. Maybe we can sort of start to wind down with this. If your medium-term forecast, what you're looking for is corrections in the US housing market, God knows we've already seen a correction in the bond market, and the S&P yep. still has further to fall, right, to maybe that 3,000 level. You know, that's kind of bumping up against this larger trend that we're talking about, which is a rising, you know, rising secular inflation, uh, this, uh, this, this want of governments to, this inability basically to enact Pain. Long-standing poli- pain, long-standing policies of reset. They're going to enact pain in another way, which is this right. weird inflationary negative real rates type environment. So how do we square the midterm, the short to middle-term policy of austerity, correction in asset prices against this longer backdrop of secular inflation, negative real rates, inflating the debt away? The first piece we wrote in 2021 was inflation, the most important variable of 2021. This year, the last piece we wrote of 2021 was return to stop, go, boom, bust economics. We think we're going back into highly volatile boom, bust economic cycles Hmm. where essentially, Michael, we will go into a deep recession. Policymakers reluctantly and I think the Fed will be highly reluctantly because it's a very distasteful thing for them to do. They desperately want to wring this inflation out of the system. I just do not believe it is possible to wring it out without acute pain, pain which the politicians will not be willing. And the Fed, as a manifestation, particularly with their employment mandate, and you know, with the exception of a few, the FOMC is pretty compassionate right, in terms of wanting to try and address full employment. I don't believe, and I think the challenge will be next year when that unemployment starts to creep up and inflation hasn't been quite wrung out of the system, that they will back off again. When that gun is put to their forehead, I think to that point that you just made, when the choices are on the table, there is an inevitability in human nature to choose the easy way out And I think given all the pressures on them, that's what will happen. So I do see, I think that's why I see that we're going into a cycle and you forget, I mean, you go and look at CPI in the great inflation and it was basically three major cycles that started in the, well, four, if you include kind of the early mid sixties that ran all the way into the eighties. Right. And I think, Yes, you know, you got huge, you know, up, down, up, down, right? But the underlying trend was up. And I think that's where we, where we exist. So I'm prepared for, I think, an incredibly volatile investment environment, incredibly volatile investment environment. Um, and we've, we'll be ready to switch on a dime. Not the world of passive investment anymore. You know, those ETFs are not going to be uh, are not going to be the performers. I'm afraid. How do you react as an investor, right? So, if passive isn't the vehicle, just broad, cheap exposure to the market, beta harvesting. What I mean, how do how do you act as an investor? Look, in this, I mean, I think I think um, 
you know, if you look at the experience in the 1960s, fixed income, disaster. <laughs> Absolute disaster. Yeah. Uh, dividend stocks, better. Uh, in an environment of um, high volatility. So I think I would have some sort of trend-following CTA that I would invest in. I think there's even an ETF now, which is supposed to be a CTA ETF. I don't know how it's performed. It's very new. But I would be looking at, you know, those types of trend-following type products should do extraordinarily well. Uh, I think you need to have, I would say very selfishly, I think you need to subscribe to services like mine, right? Where people who specialize in timing the market, right? Timing the market. Um, and have got a proven track record to do, it will help you manage your money. Mm -hmm. I, if, I think if we get to the end of this and you've, sustained your current level of wealth, then you have going, you're going to have beaten 90% of the rest of society. Because I think these are periods of broad wealth destruction, unless maybe, you know, you are someone like yourself, Michael, who's a young kid who, you know, is in that wealth accumulation and you can get a 30% pay rise, right? Mm -hmm. And you can get, I remember my dad in the old days, you know, in, when inflation was high in the UK, they used, people used to get paid in cash. Hmm. You'd pay for things in cash because you didn't want to pay the tax and you were trying to, you know, and there were ways of avoiding these schemes like, the, you know, every loophole, the big one in the UK was, oh, you, they tried to cap off executive pay, but they didn't stop you getting company cars. So all of a sudden, every single, you know, manager at a UK firm got a lovely company car all of a sudden, right? You know, whatever the hell it is, um, There'll be ways around it, but I do think you need to be become a student of the market. Uh, you generally want to be invested in equities, apart from when you want to be out. And then I think bouts when you, you're in cash um, and fixed income is a disaster. And look, you can have, you know, I think come the next pivot, which as I said, you know, is when the pain gets so great. I think there's a series of trades that you can put on, which are basically going to be anti-dollar trades, you know, long commodities, particularly precious metals, you know, long emerging markets, things like this, because I think the U.S. has got extraordinarily expensive versus the rest of the world. Mm. But is it, is it today? No. No. Mm. Julian, I think I should warn you that I actually have the Benjamin Button disease. I'm aging backwards. I'm actually older <laughs> than you are, my friend. <laughs> Well, good for you, mate. Good for you. Dorian Gray, you can go and kick your Dorian Gray picture. That was such a dad joke. Oh, my God. Will's never going to leave this in. Uh, Julian, you've been super generous with your time. Uh, I have to plug your product. You put out so much great material. If folks want to find out more about you, follow you on Twitter, subscribe to your service. What's the best way to do it? So if you want to subscribe or you're interested either in, in what I do uh, for MI2 or what I do with Raoul Powell for Macro Insiders, which is orientated more around uh, sort of a retail audience, you can go to support at mi2partners.com. And if you just want to follow me on Twitter or you want to ask me a question, you know, and I'm, I, you know, I spend far too much time on Twitter, as, as friends of mine will tell you, uh, then just follow me at, at Julian MI2. Excellent. Julian, this has been a ton of fun. We'll have to do it again soon. 
pleasure. Thanks, Michael. Cheers.